Hello and welcome back. Thanks for following along for season two of Music for PhDs. So we've been learning about music and language this season, how they're similar and how they differ. Today, we're going to talk about the ultimate combination of music and language, singing. There's a lot of similarities between speech and singing. Singing takes the words of spoken language and sets them to music. And both, of course, you know, use the voice box. Right. All the physiology works similarly. So whether you speak or sing, you're moving air in and out of your lungs, you're vibrating your vocal cords, and you're using your lips, teeth, and tongue to shape sounds. I've actually heard that people who stutter don't do it when they sing. Uh, sometimes that's true, although not always. There is evidence that speaking and singing activate different parts of your brain. Fun fact, I once had pictures of my brain taken for a research project about speech. Nice. What was that like? Uh, profoundly uncomfortable. <laughs> Apparently, the back of my skull is weirdly shaped. And I have to say, it's pretty claustrophobic and also really loud. Uh, have you ever done an MRI? I haven't, actually. I've just seen them on TV. So an MRI is this enormous machine that takes up an entire room. But the part for people is just a really small tube in the middle of the big machine. The M in MRI stands for magnet. So you can't have any metal in you or on you when they start this machine because it generates a magnetic field. You lie flat to get wheeled into the tube on this kind of fast food tray. And then your head and your upper body are encased. And sometimes you look up at a really small screen. It sounds like something out of a Marvel movie. It's about that expensive, but less exciting. <laughs> uh, the machine is super loud while it's running. So the researchers mic themselves in and give you instructions. I had to read words on a screen without saying anything out loud, and I had to stay perfectly still for an hour. The magnet captures brain activity, and if you move, you ruin the pictures. So the researcher was someone I knew pretty well, and when I got out of the stupid deafening magnet tube an hour later, I used some <laughs> of my most colorful words to let him know how great the back of my skull did not feel. A really honest post-participant survey. <laughs> That's the price you pay for studying your friends in experiments. Um, but also, dear listeners, a disclaimer. I'm kind of joking here, so please don't let my description stop you from getting an MRI if you need one. You can get pillows, earplugs, and even anti-anxiety meds. The hospital I work at has Canada's first research MRI designed exclusively for kids, and they have a blast, so it's not all bad. Anyway, on with the show. So last episode, we talked about the Mozart effect. We kind of threw it out the window. <laughs> the idea that one specific composer or genre of music will make you smarter is to use a very scientific term, bunk. Instead, what we learned from those studies is that lots of music can make for great study music as long as it energizes you and you don't find it distracting. This is music for mood management and we do it all the time, pumping ourselves up for the gym or calming down before we go to sleep. Like lullabies, right? Dr. Adiman talked about moms singing to babies as the possible genesis of all art, fostering human connection and communication from parent to child. Exactly. 
caregivers do this kind of emotional regulating with babies all the time. One cool study of mums who sang to their six-month-old babies used mouth swabs to test for stress hormones in saliva. And the study found that babies who started out with higher levels of stress hormones showed a decrease after their mom sang to them, as if they'd been soothed. Unexpectedly, though, the study also found that infants with below average levels of cortisol showed an increase as though they might have been excited or stimulated by the singing. So after their mother sang, the babies in the study seemed to converge towards some optimal level. It's music as emotional management. It had a very real physical effect on the babies. That's so fascinating. Lullabies are kind of these magic spells. And when you think of your average lullaby, I mean, a lot of them are just kind of nonsense words. Well, when someone is talking or singing to a baby, it isn't the words that really matter. It's the back and forth interaction that the two are having together. It's sometimes referred to as serve and return, which captures the idea that both of the people are adapting and responding to each other back and forth. Do you remember Dr. Addyman described baby laughter as being rewarding? Mm-hmm. Very young babies respond by looking at people or waving their hands and feet. And as they get older, they start to do things like laugh and smile and make movements, reaching out and grasping your hand or waving, and that makes it rewarding for parents to interact with them. Getting attention from the people who take care of you is really a matter of survival for helpless babies. And it's super cute. So music regulates mood for adults, but also for babies, especially in those serve-and-return interactions you mentioned. Does peekaboo count? Absolutely. Another example of this is something scientists call infant-directed speech. You've probably heard it or done it yourself when you talk to a baby (laughs) like this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You use a high pitch with extra repetition and exaggerated ups and downs. So babies show more interest in this kind of infant-directed speech than they do to normal speech. And most adults do it kind of automatically when a baby's around. Talking like that sets off a cycle of acting and reacting, where the baby and the adult are customizing how they interact with each other. This can also happen with singing. So in songs that grown-ups sing to babies... The pitch and the rhythm both tend to be exaggerated, and there are more pauses, plus the words get articulated differently. So it makes the singing more interesting for babies, and like infant-directed speech, it's something people tend to do pretty automatically. But the cool part, I think, is that babies can tell when lullabies are being sung in the presence or absence of a baby. Hmm. So the babies are psychic. (laughs) (laughs) Not psychic, but definitely super tuned in. So Dr. Addyman mentioned this, and he was referring to a particular study where moms were recorded singing the same song two different times, once while their baby was in the room with them, and then again when the mom was alone. Even though the moms were told to sing the two versions exactly the same way, adults who listened to both recordings could consistently tell which one was the one with the baby in the room. So it's that automatic infant-directed singing kicking in. Even cooler, though, the babies almost exclusively prefer songs recorded with a baby in the room, even if it's not their own mom singing. 
So not only do the women change their singing, but the babies can tell and they really like it. Is this a mom-specific thing? Does everyone talk or sing differently in front of a baby? Uh, Most people do use baby talk with babies. It's pretty widespread and pretty automatic. There's less research into baby singing, but I do know one study that looks specifically at dads, and it found that dads, just like moms did, sang differently when their baby was in the room. However, they didn't sing exactly like the moms did, so they didn't usually sing to the baby at a higher pitch. And if the pitch was no different, babies liked both versions of the dad songs equally. But not the dad puns, right? Womp womp. Lullabies have a really important effect on babies. Obviously, they work at least some of the time, or exhausted parents wouldn't have been using them for thousands of years. Go science. Way to state the obvious. Babies respond to speech and song just like the rest of us. So when they hear high-energy play songs like the happy song, they tend to be more alert and engaged. When they hear lullabies, they're often soothed and relaxed. And the fact that the music is being shared with someone they care about is a really important piece of the puzzle. Most music making is inherently about groups of people. Personally, I don't really think of music as a communal activity. I picture someone rehearsing alone in their basement or their garage. Well, the stereotype of a lone musician practicing at all hours of the day and night exists for a reason. Um, It's especially true in a culture like ours because we prize highly expert individuals and we have really sharp divides between musical performers and musical audiences. So for most of us, music gets treated as something you either can or cannot do, as opposed to something everybody does. Yeah, that kind of 10,000-hour myth about becoming a virtuoso and playing Carnegie Hall at the pinnacle of your achievement. Right, well, everybody sits and watches because you're an expert. But shared music making is often what brings people together for all kinds of events and occasions. So weddings, funerals, and even singing happy birthday are all ways where we might use music to celebrate both the sacred and the secular. The groups of people making that music can be anything from symphony orchestras to teenagers out in the garage. We started out today talking about singing, and in fact, groups of people coming together to sing might be the oldest shared form of music making. Choirs are a really good example of making music together and of the importance that singing can have for a community of people. My name is Kathleen Allen. I'm a composer, conductor, and soprano. I'm the artistic director of the Amadeus Choir of Greater Toronto and of Canzona, Winnipeg's professional Baroque choir. A lot of people, when they think of choir music, they think of either going to church or they think of glee. So, <laughs> so how would you how would you describe choir music to somebody who's never attended a choir concert? Well, uh, it's funny that you mentioned those two things. Those are sort of two extremes of the wide, wide spectrum that is choral music. And in Canada, um, new research actually shows that more people sing in choirs than play hockey recreationally. So it is actually a national pastime for Canadians. So I think choral music is one of the most beautiful ways to create community When you sing in a group of people, you are exposing one of the most vulnerable 
parts of yourself, your voice and your singing voice. Um, but yet it's in this safe environment because everybody else is doing this, the very same thing and taking that same risk. So choral music can span anything from children singing in a classroom to learn the alphabet or to learn counting or rhymes all the way up to professional singers. I like what you said about it being kind of a safe space to sing because when you hear a choir, you're really not picking out an individual voice. Maybe there are occasions, but it's really more than the sum of its parts type of performance. Exactly. In a choir, you have this full spectrum that is really indecipherable. The other important thing about choral music is that of course we can express text so it has this additional element of poetry that can often be in counterpoint with the music and really express something very personal and very meaningful. And then do you compose uh, music to be played by instruments alongside the music that is sung by the instrument that is the choir? Yes, that's a nice way to put it, that the choir is, is sort of like an instrument. I write instrumental music as well. Have you have you done any kind of living room concerts and things like that during COVID? Like we've kind of described choir music as this very communal, very blended thing. Uh, so how does that work if you are physically distanced or, you know, going via Zoom as we are right now? It's really hard. It's really difficult. And it's been hard for the the entire choral community. But people are coming up with creative ways to to bridge the gap. It hasn't totally replaced what we do in person because that that feeling of breathing mm. together and singing with your peers is, is just so unique and so special. So Il Pleu, it's based on a poem. Tell me the story of how that work came to be and what you were trying to incorporate into it or bring to life with it. Sure. Um, well, I had just visited Paris for the first time. And I was walking through the Pompidou, the Contemporary Art Museum, uh, with my then boyfriend, now husband, and came across these poems. And the, the thing about les calligrammes is that the words are formatted in the shape of the thing that they're about. I found Il Pleu. The text is in the, it looks like raindrops on a window that have sort of like hit the window and then streaking down the sides. And I wanted to to try to capture what Apollinaire was doing in in creating this very strong image of downward falling rain and to try to capture that sonically. It is kind of a dark poem. <laughs> I, yeah. I've read the translation. But I when I listen to the choir piece, I don't necessarily get a dark sense from it. Tell me, what kind of emotions were you trying to convey? You have the text for the poem as kind of like a starting point, but mm. obviously from there, it's become this, its own piece, its own artwork. What were you hoping to put into it? Um, I really believe that it's my job as a composer to dive into the text and see what it wants to be. So I, I spend a lot of time speaking the text to get the, the sound of it and the rhythm of it and also just reflecting on it and I memorize it and I, I really try to to internalize it so that the music kind of lifts it up. The idea is that it it doesn't just use the text and bend it to my own will as a composer. So that's sort of my where I'm coming at um, this from philosophically speaking. Um, and what I got out of this text was this sense of mourning it talks about the rain sounding like voices of people who have left us. But it also says that the rain 
is, even though it's full of regret and disdain, that it releases us of the bonds that hold us to these sort of earthly ties. is a visually arranged poem, so I wanted to bring that in. I had it printed out on watercolor paper, so you can see the words and the letters in their intended shape through the paint. Il Pleur is all about regret and loss, so I used a palette of grays and sepia tones. I didn't try to mimic the brain streaks since the words are already arranged that way. But I did set the paper in a different configuration, so it's in portrait mode rather than landscape, which is a little unique for me. You can check out the finished painting on my website along with the show notes. I've included links to Kathleen's website and SoundCloud for more of her choral music. I've never listened to a lot of choral music, but I'm putting it on my radar for those introspective mornings. This season is all about music and language. But have you ever tried singing in another language? Next episode, we're going to talk to Caitlin Wood, an opera singer who regularly sings and performs in German, French, and Italian. And we're going to learn from Dr. Kate about the International Phonetic Alphabet, bendy diphthong vowels, and if opera singers can actually shatter glass with their voice. Thanks again for joining us on this season of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. Mm-hmm.